present Barry Foster as Sherlock Holmes and David Buck as Dr. Watson in a new dramatization of the short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Silver Blades, dramatized by Michael Bakewell. Mrs. Straker. Looks like he's vanished. There's something flapping on that first bush down there. Where? There, oh. over to the right. It's John's overcoat. I'm sure of it. There's something down there in the hollow. Oh, my God. Stay here, Mrs. I'll go and see. Who is it? Don't come down, Mrs. His skull's been stove in. We are going well. Hmm. Our rate at present is 53 and a half miles an hour. Oh, I have not observed the quarter mile post. Nor have I, Watson. The telegraph posts upon this line are 60 yards apart, and since my watch is invariably accurate, the calculation is a simple one. I presume you have already looked into the matter of the murder of John Straker, the disappearance of the favourite for the Wessex Cup. I, I have seen what the telegraph from the Chronicle have to say. On Tuesday evening, I received telegrams both from Colonel Ross, the owner of the horse, and from Inspector Gregory, who is looking after the case, inviting my cooperation. Tuesday evening? But this is Thursday morning, Holmes. Why did you not go down yesterday? Because I made a blunder, my dear one. Surely not, Holmes. The fact is, I could not believe it possible that the most remarkable horse in England could long remain concealed, especially in so sparsely inhabited a place as the North and Dark One. I was mistaken. If in some ways I feel that yesterday has not been wasted, you have formed a theory then. At least I have a grasp of the essential features of the case. I shall enumerate them to you. Silver Blake is now in his fifth year and he has won each of the prizes of the turf. Until his disappearance, he was favourite for the Wessex Cup, as he being into one. Enormous sums of money have been laid on him. 
It's obvious, therefore, that there are many people who have the strongest interest in preventing Tourmalet being there at the fall of the flag next Tuesday. But had no precautions been taken? Every precaution. Trainer John Straker has been in Colonel Ross's service for years. And he had insisted that one of the stable boys sit up each night in Silver Blazer's stable, while the other boys slept in the loft above. Yes. yes. Now, on the evening of the tragedy, it was a lad called Ned Hunter's turn to mount guard. At a few minutes after nine, the maid, Edith Baxter, carried Hunter's supper down to the stables. It was a dish of curried mutton. She took no liquid, as there was a water tap in the stables, and it was a rule that the lad on duty should drink nothing else. The maid carried a lantern with her, as it was very dark, and the path ran across the open moor. Hey! Oh! Hey there! Stop a minute, will you? Can you tell me where I am? Uh, you're, you're close to King's Pylon, sir. The racing stables? Mm. What a stroke of luck. Is that the uh, stable boy's supper you're carrying there? Yes, it is. Well, now, if you see that the stable boy gets this slip of paper tonight, you shall have the prettiest frock that money can buy. Go away. I want nothing to do with you. Ned? Ned, open the window. There's a stranger here pestering me. Ned! What is it, Edith? What's going on? Nothing to concern yourself about. I just wanted a word with you, that's all. What business have you here? It's business that may put something in your pocket. You've two horses running in the Wessex Cup. Silver Blaze and Bayard. Let me have the straight tip, and you won't be a loser. Oh, one of those damn touts! I'll show you how we serve them in King's Pylon. Be off, or I'll set the dogs on you! Just a moment, Holt. Did the stable boy, when he ran out with the dog, leave the door unlocked behind him? Excellent, Watson. <laughs> the boy locked the door before he went, and the window was not large enough for a man to get through. I see. Now, you'll have read about the disappearance of the favourite and the discovery of Straker's body on the moors the following morning. His head had been beaten in. There were marks of a struggle all about him. In one hand, he held a knife covered in blood up to the handle. In the other, he clutched a cravat, which Hunter later identified as belonging to the stranger who had been at the stables the previous evening. An analysis of the remains of Hunter's supper showed an appreciable quantity powdered opium. Ah, yet the people of the house had partaken of the same dish on the same night without any ill effect. And the uh, police, what is their opinion? The case has been entrusted to Inspector Gregory, an extremely competent officer, but not endowed with a great imagination. He's meeting us at Tavistock Station. I gather he's tracked down the stranger and placed him under arrest. He's a ne'er-do-well amateur young bookmaker named Fitzroy Simpson. He's our man, Mr. Holmes. In his betting book, he registered £5,000 against the favourite. He'd also been trying to get information out of Silas Brown at Capewooden Stables across the moor. And the cravat? How did he account for that? Uh, he turned quite pale when we confronted him with it. And then there was his stick. Stick? A Penang lawyer, Mr. Holmes, weighted with lead. And could well have caused those terrible head injuries. But I understand that Stricker had a knife in his hand. Uh, he had. A 
and that is our one weak spot. The knife was clotted with blood, but there was no wound on Simpson's person. But is it not possible? Yes, Watson. Is it not possible that the incised wound on Scripps' body may have been caused by his own knife in the convulsive struggles which followed brain injury? Well, if that were so, it would tell against Simpson. Our theory is that having poisoned the stable boy, he took the horse out onto the moor with the intention of kidnapping him. Somehow or other, Straker got wind of what was happening and followed him. There was a struggle during which Simpson beat out Straker's brains with his stick. And Silver Blaze? Bolted during the struggle or has been hidden away somewhere. What of the other two lads in the loft? Both sound sleepers. They heard nothing during the night. Indeed. Yes, I think we have enough to go before a jury. But your evidence is entirely circumstantial, Inspector. I fear that a clever counsel would tear it all to rags. We shall see, Mr. Holmes, we shall see. Ah, but we've arrived at King's Pyland. Colonel Ross is expecting us. I'm delighted that you've come down, Mr. Holmes. Well, the Inspector has done all that could possibly be suggested, but I wish to leave no stone unturned in trying to avenge poor Straker and in recovering Silver Blaze. Unless <clears throat> you wish to proceed directly to the scene of the crime? I think I should prefer to stay here for a while and go into one or two questions of detail. Well, after so much time has passed, Mr. Holmes, I have my own methods, Colonel. Now, Inspector, after his death, Straker was brought back here? Yes, he lies upstairs. The inquest is tomorrow. And he was in your service for some years, Colonel Ross? Both as jockey and trainer. I always found him to be an ex I presume that you made an inventory of what he had in his pockets at the time of death, Inspector. Well, I have the things themselves in this box. Care to see them? I should be very glad. There we are. Yeah. Box of vestas. Two inches of tallow candle. A briar root pipe. Pouch of seal skin with half an ounce of tobacco. Long cut cavendish. Silver watch with a gold chain. Five gold sovereigns. An aluminium pencil case. A few papers on an ivory-handled knife with a very delicate, inflexible blade marked White and Cold London. This is the knife found in Straker's hand? Yes, Mr. Holmes. It's surely in your line, Watson. Ah, thank you. <coughs> oh, yes, yes, it is what we call a cataract knife. I thought so. Very delicate blade devised for very delicate work. His wife tells us that the knife had lain for some days upon the dressing table and he picked it up when he left it. What about these papers? No, they're of no consequence, Mr. Hampson. Yeah, hey, dealer's accounts, instructions from Colonel Ross. Mm -hmm. Well, what's this one? A milliner's account for £37.15. <laughs> made out by Madame Le Zerrier of Bond Street to William Darby. Now, we're wasting our time on such trivia, Mr. Holmes. It will scarcely help us to find my horse. Every detail makes its point, Colonel. Did you follow this up, Inspector? And Mrs. Straker tells us that Derbyshire was a friend of her husband's and that occasionally his letters were addressed here. Madame Derbyshire has somewhat expensive taste. However, let us bow to the Colonel's impatience and go down to the scene of the crime. This is the place, Mr. Holmes. The first bush in which the stable boy found Straker's coat is over there. Now, there was not much wind that night, I understand. No, but heavy rain. So the overcoat was not blown against the first bush, but placed there. 
I perceive that the ground has been trampled up a good deal. No doubt many feet have been here since Monday night. A piece of matting has been laid here at the side, and we've all stood on that. Uh, excellent. In this bag, I have one of the boots which John Straker wore, one of Fitzroy Simpson's shoes, and a cast horseshoe of silver blade. My dear inspector, you surprised yourself. Yeah. I shall take advantage of your matting to study the crime at Grand Lone. Hello. What's this? Wax Vesta. Half buried. I cannot think how I came to overlook it. Oh, it was invisible. Buried in the mud. I only saw it because I was looking for it. You've explored the fern bushes round the rim of the hollow. A hundred yards in each direction. I'm afraid there are no more tracks. Indeed. I think that Watson and I will take a walk over the moors before it gets dark. I think I shall put this horseshoe in my pocket. For luck. I wish you would come back with me, Inspector. There are several points on which I should like your advice. And especially as to whether we do not <coughs> owe it to the public to remove our horse's name from the entrance of the cup. Certainly not. I should let the name stand. I'm very glad to have had your opinion, sir. You will find us at Boy Straker's house when you have finished your little walk. <coughs> And we can drive together into Tavistock. Come, Inspector. Yes. Nothing, Watson. I think we should leave aside the problem of John Straker for the moment. We confine ourselves to finding out what has become of the horse. Now, supposing that he broke away during or after the struggle, where would he have gone to? Now, the horse is a very gregarious creature. Left to himself, his instincts would have been either to return to King's Pyland or to go over to the rival stables at Capleton. Now, he's not at Pilot, therefore, he is at Kippleton. Although Gregory found no tracks, here there's a long hollow, do you see, over there, in the direction of Capleton. Now, it must have been very wet there on Monday night. If our supposition is correct, then the horse must have crossed that, and there's the point where we should look for tracks. Come on. Now, Watson, if you would be so good as to take the right bank of the hollow. Ah, very well, sir. Ah, Watson, yeah. You what? see? Good, good heavens. The track of a horse. Now, if we try the horseshoe so thoughtfully provided by Inspector Gregory, it fits exactly. You see the value of imagination, Watson. <laughs> it's the one quality which the good inspector lacks. We imagine what might have happened acted from the supposition and find ourselves justified. Huh. Let's proceed. Look, Holmes. Ah, footprints by those of the horse. An unusually shaped last. The horse was alone before, Holmes. Let us follow and see where they lead. Oh, but they turn back towards King's Pilot. No, no, Holmes, no. Look, they turn back again. Ah. One for you, Watson. Ah, sir. There's no question where they're leading now. To Capleton Stables. Someone found a horse wandering on the moor. Obviously, he recognized the animal by its white forehead. His first thought was to take it back to King's Pilot. Then he realized the opportunity the chance had put into his hand. Watson, I think we should make our way to Lord Blackwater's stables at Capleton. Have a word with his manager, Mr. Silas Brown. Stay off with you. We don't want no loiterers here. Oh. Reach 
into your waistcoat pocket as if for a half crown. It's a gesture which I've known never to fail. Oh. Master, oh. don't take kindly to strangers here. I merely wished to ask a simple question. Should I be too early to see your master, Mr. Silas Brown, if I were to call here at five o'clock tomorrow morning? If anyone is about at that time, he will be, sir, for he's always the first stirring. Oh, thank you kindly, sir. What are you doing there, Darcy? Oh, that's him now, sir. Don't let him see me taking your money. It's more than my face is worth. Take her, perhaps. Darcy, I will not have you gossiping. Get away your business. You? Why the devil do you want here? Ten minutes talk with you, my good sir. I've no time to talk to every gadabout. Be off or you'll find a dog at your heels. You <laughs> may find what I have to say not entirely without interest. <laughs> a word in your ear, sir, if you please. Excuse me, Watson. Oh. but I described to him so exactly what his actions had been upon that morning that he's convinced that I was watching him. <laughs> of course, you observed the peculiarly square toes in the impression. His own boots exactly corresponded to them. I described to him how he found Silver Blaze wandering over the moor and his astonishment that chance had put into his power the only horse which could beat the one upon which he had put his money. When I told him every detail, he gave it up, thought only of saving his own skin. But surely the cable to the stables had been searched. Oh, an old horse faker like him has many a dodge. Well, Colonel Ross would be greatly relieved. I am inclined to keep our discovery to ourselves for the time being, Watson. I don't know whether you observed it, but the Colonel's manner has been just a little cavalier towards me. I'm inclined to have some amusement at his expense. They'll say nothing to him about the horse. Well, certainly not without your permission, Holmes. And, of course, all this is quite a minor case compared with the question of who killed John Straker. And you will now devote yourself to that? On the contrary. We both go back to London by the night train. So, you're giving up the case already, Mr. Holmes. You despair of arresting the murderer of poor Straker. There are certain grave difficulties in the way. And Silver Blaze? Oh, I have every hope that he will start on Tuesday. I beg that you have your jockey in readiness. You're stunned, Mayor Holmes. Inspector, might I have a photograph of John Straker? I have one here, Mr. Holmes. Oh, my dear Gregory, you anticipate all my wants. <clears throat> well, I've had your baggage stowed, Mr. Holmes. The carriage is ready. Excellent, thank you. Oh, just a moment. I see a few sheep in the paddock there. Yes. Well, have you noticed anything wrong with them lately? Strange that you should say that. I have been told that some have gone lame recently. Really? A long shot, Watson, a very long shot. Uh, Gregory, let me recommend to your attention this singular epidemic among the sheep. You consider the sheep to be important? Exceedingly, sir. 
Is there any other point to which you would wish to draw my attention? To the curious incident of the dog in the night time. The dog did nothing in the night time. That was the curious incident. Goodbye, Gregory. Goodbye, Colonel. We shall meet again at Winchester to see the race for the Wessex Cup. such a question before, sir. A child would know Silver Blaze's white forehead. That horse did not have a white hair in its coat. Well, Colonel, let us go and look at the horse together. Very well. He seems to know you, Colonel, at any rate. <laughs> You'll then let him wash his face in spirits of wine and you'll find that he's the same old Silver Blaze him in the hands of a faker and took the liberty of running him just as he was. My dear sir, I owe you a thousand apologies for having doubted your abilities. Well, you could now lay your hands on the murderer of John Straker. I have done so. You've got him. Where is he then? In my company at the present moment. I quite recognize that I'm under obligations to you, Mr. Holmes, but I must regard what you've just said as either a very bad joke or an insult. No, Colonel, I did not mean you. Real culprit is standing immediately in front of you. Mm -hmm. Here. Of course. It may lessen his guilt if I say that it was done in self-defense. And that John Stricker was a man who was entirely unworthy of your confidence. But this is neither the time nor the place. I've reserved three places on the six o'clock Pullman. I suggest that we defer a full explanation until then. Chain of reasoning. <coughs> really, Mr. Holmes? Powdered opium is by no means tasteless. A curry was exactly the medium which would disguise it. But I don't it effectively that. eliminated Fitzroy Simpson as the culprit. By no possible supposition could he have caused curry to have been served to the stable boy that night. Therefore, my attention centered upon John Straker. Now, you will recall the curious incident of the dog in the night. Inspector Gregory seemed most puzzled. It was the silence of the dog that caught my attention. Someone had been in, had fetched out a horse, and yet the dog had not barked enough to arouse the two lads in the lot. Obviously, the midnight visitor was someone he knew well. Oh, of course. Never occurred. Well, there have been cases before now where trainers have made sure of great sums of money by laying against their own horses. But in what way did he intend to incapacitate Silver Blaze? It was the delicate surgeon's knife in the dead man's hand which provided the explanation. A slight subcutaneous nick across the tendons of a horse's hand would lame him, but would leave no trace. The villain, the scoundrel! Straker led the horse out onto the moor to a hollow where he could perform his operation by the light of a candle without being observed. A Simpson 
in his flight had dropped his cravat and Straker picked it up, perhaps with the idea of securing the horse's leg. He took off his overcoat, got behind the horse and struck a light, but the creature, frightened at the sudden glare, lashed out and the steel shoe hit Straker full on the forehead and in falling the knife gashed his thigh. Do I make it clear? Wonderful. You might have been there. My final shot was, I confess, a very long one. It struck me that so astute a man as Straker would not undertake this delicate tendon nicking without a little practice. I noticed the sheep, and I asked you a question which, rather to my surprise, showed that my theory was correct. But could I have been so mistaken in a man? He'd been in my employ for 12 years, Mr. Holmes. You were not altogether mistaken. The contents of Straker's pockets provided the clue. As a man of the world, Colonel, you know that men do not carry other men's bills about in their pockets. I at once concluded that Straker was living a double life and keeping a second establishment. Oh, the bill from the milliner. Precisely, Watson. I called there with the photographs so kindly provided by Inspector Gregory. The milliner at once recognized Straker as an excellent customer of the name of Derbyshire, who had a very dashing wife with a strong partiality for expensive dresses. I have no doubt that this woman has plunged him head over heels in debt. Uh, there is one thing, Mr. Oh, this is Clapham Junction, if I'm not mistaken. And we shall be in Victoria in less than ten minutes. If you would care to smoke a cigar in our room, Colonel, I shall be happy to give you any other details which might interest you. Radio by Michael Bakewell. Inspector Gregory was played by Jeffrey Matthews. Colonel Ross by Alexander John. Mrs. Straker, Patricia Gibson. Edith, Patricia Gallimore. Ned Hunter, Peter Brooks. And Simpson by Adrian Bracken. The play was directed in our Birmingham studios by Roger Pines. 